Please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to our text this evening, which comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, as we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verses 1 to 12, which covers the entire chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verses 1 to 12. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. The man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his, of his vain life which passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Thus far as the reading of God's Word. What Solomon here is addressing in this uh, sixth chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes is the misery of the earthly-minded man. Okay? The misery of the earthly-minded man. The, the evil that he describes here, he says, it lays heavy on mankind, on the mind of mankind in verse 1. Now, we know that it was not that way from the beginning, was it? Uh, From the beginning, man was created to live in fellowship with God. And so there was no evil that lay heavy on the mind of man. Uh, Rather, man's mind was good, wasn't it, from the beginning? Uh, Man's mind was set on good things, wasn't it? Ultimately, it it was set upon that final pursuit and goal of eternal paradise. I mean, if you think about it, even, even the work that God gave man in the garden uh, was work that was to remind him of what uh, awaited him when he accomplished uh, the terms of the covenant that God made with him in the garden, which was eternal paradise. Right? But since the fall, right, man no longer... Uh, works or strives to live his life with eyes looking forward to the eternal paradise, does he? 
No, no more do we see that since the fall. Now man lives with his eyes towards the earth, uh, desiring to establish for himself not a, uh, a paradise in the sky, but an earthly paradise, doesn't he? Right? One that is not filled with spiritual things. Uh, one that's not filled with God, but rather one that's filled with transient things. Right? Things that are fleeting. That's what's in the, in the heart of man since the fall. Right? He desires uh, earthly things. This is what he wants. This is what he, he craves. This is what he thirsts after. And isn't it true that many times God says to, to that man, okay, here, this is what you want here. Have it. And have it in full. The man in verse 2 of our text, we're told he lacks nothing that he desires. He has wealth, possession, and honor. Right? We're told God has given this man the greatest desires of his heart. And we see that nothing that he desired was spiritual, was it? And it's not as if this man said, God, I just want communion with you. And I'd rather have a, I just rather have a, a deeper, more intimate, fulfilling relationship with the Lord. I'd rather have more spiritual wisdom and understanding. No, he doesn't say that. Right? The desires of his heart are wealth and possession and honor. And so God gives him exactly what he wants, but what God won't give to the sinner is the ability to enjoy those things that he has given him. Because it is not something, the enjoyment of those things is not something that belongs to natural man, does it? As we've learned over and over again each week as we've studied this book, that rather the ability to enjoy the good things of God only comes through knowing the gift giver himself. And so Solomon says that God gives natural man these things, but he will not give him the power to enjoy them. And oftentimes that's because why? The, the things that man desires, uh, he desires them not as good gifts from God that he will receive and then use to glorify God in the world, but rather man desires these things and wants these things because they are idols in his life. And so God is not going to bless the natural man with the enjoyment of idols all the while they are impeding him from looking up and acknowledging God. But God will judge him. He will allow this man to, to just consume his idols, right? to be filled with his idols. Yet in the end, what we read here is that this man loses everything. Right? Everything that he came in possession of, everything that he wanted, he eventually loses to a stranger. And it's this stranger, we're told, who gets to enjoy these things. The implication being what? The stranger who now receives these things uses them rightly. Right? Values them appropriately. Receives them with thankfulness. And finds happiness in the things that he has. Not because of the things themselves, but he is happy, made happy, because of who hand, whose hand he receives them from. And so God allows this man then Right to enjoy those good things. But what a grievous evil it is, isn't it? That covetousness and greed and an incessant care for the things of the world deny a person the enjoyment of God's good things on earth. Right? What a grievous evil that this man's miserable condition renders all that he has as vain. You see, brothers and sisters, what benefit is there in this world to hunt after riches, 
Right? What benefit is there? We see that the world does this, but it, it makes them no happier. Right? This world lives to please themselves. They live for their own pleasure. And yet, at the end of it all, they are never being pleased. Right? It's a, really a plague upon man. But it's a plague that, that can be undone, but it can only be undone by God, which is why we are to set our hearts upon Him. Right? We are to, to set our hearts' desires upon the things of God. And knowing then, and only then, will He grant to us the ability to use the good gifts of God rightly and to enjoy them in their rightful purposes. Now Solomon then, in verses 3-6, to six, uh, turns his attention back onto this miserable, miserable man once more, saying this, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. And even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. To have many children and to have a long life, those are good things, aren't they? Those aren't bad things to, to desire, but I want us to see how even the joy and the comfort of those things can be stripped of us when we have this insatiable appetite for, for more and more and more and we're not happy and satisfied and content with the things that God has given to us. For the Israelite, those who, who Solomon is writing to at this time, I mean, the pinnacle of earthly blessings would have been what? Right? Long life. Right? Many children and wealth. And yet, is it shocking to see that Solomon can say that a stillborn child, right, that is a, a baby that is born dead, is better off than even this man. But if you look at the, at the man's life, I think it, it becomes easier to see why. I mean, this man has all these kids, but nobody misses him when he's gone. Nobody misses him out of the hundred children he has. Right? There is no greater insult in the ancient world than to not be buried. He has a hundred kids. He has all these things. Certainly the money to, to purchase a plot. And yet, he is not buried. He's quickly forgotten. No tears from his family are spilled over this man. And so the point is that the, the stillborn is better off than this man because the stillborn will not come into this world to know the sorrows and the frustrations and the miseries and the disappointments that this man knows. Right? He's saying a life of one such as this man in such a miserable condition who has it all but can't enjoy any of it, he's in a worse position than the child who's been born dead. To live 2,000 years and to not be able to enjoy any good in it is not something we ought to envy. Although the child never got to see good, that's still better than the man who sees good, who has good, but never gets to enjoy the good. Think about the, the life of this miserable, miserable man as he's living all these years. You know, many people envy those who live, in, who live long lives. But just think about it. If this man really if he lived 2,000 years, 
in this unhappiness. Right? What's happening year after year after year? He's just compiling sorrow upon sorrow. Right? Frustration upon frustration. I mean, I ask you then, really, who is better off? Right? The stillborn child or this man who has to live for 2,000 years in such misery? Especially when uh, Solomon says they, they both go to the same place when they die. They, they both return to the dust is what he means. Now, I think all of us perhaps know of folks who, are, who have lived a, a, a long life, who have many things, um, but who are ready to give it all up and die. I think we all probably know people like that. Maybe people in our own family, co-workers, friends. Um, but how sad is that? Right? Living for this world, finding no satisfaction for your soul, uh, and because of it, just ready to, to toss in the towel on life. Right? But that isn't the way that the, that the Christian ought to, ought to view things, should it be? Now, if we think about the Christian... Uh, think about Christians who, who have died in old age or, or Christians that we know who are, who are up there in years now who likewise are ready to die. The, the Christian is ready to die for a much different reason, aren't they? Right? The, the Christian has enjoyed the things of the earth but knows something better awaits them. Right? They're not like those who live on the earth, the godless, who have put all their, their hope in things. And when they have come to the realization that those things will never satisfy them, that they always disappoint, then they're ready to die. Right? But not the Christian. Because the Christian sets their, their, their eyes upon a living hope. Right? They set their eyes upon, upon Christ, who is the only one who is able to, to cure the, the misery of the natural man. And it's after a long life of living for, for God on earth, enjoying the good things of God, that they say, I'm ready to do this now in, in glory with God. Right? I'm ready to, to be with Him now. Now in verse 7, Solomon continues to demonstrate the miserable condition of fallen man when he says this, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. To say that his toil is for his mouth is to say that, that, that this man works um, for his bodily sustenance. Right? He, he works to take care of his physical needs. But none of it right, satisfies his soul. None of it works to, to help his soul in any way. In verse 8, then, the question is asked, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? The answer is nothing. There is no advantage for any of them. Right? The, the wisest of men has nothing without the saving knowledge of Christ that will draw him into true happiness and satisfaction more so than the fool who is not wise. Right? And the same is true of the rich and poor. Right? None of them are, are closer to the kingdom than the other. They're all alike far off because they lack saving knowledge which comes through Christ. Right? They lack that saving knowledge. In verse 9, then Solomon says this, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Right? 
what he's saying there is it's better to enjoy what you, what you possess. It's better to enjoy the things that you have than to be in constant pursuit of what you don't have, which is described as the wandering of the appetite. But isn't it our nature to wander? Isn't our, it's our nature to wander, to not be content with what we have and to, and to wander. Right? Our eyes wander. Our hearts wander. Our minds wander. Always searching and reaching for the unattainable. But isn't this the very opposite of how the Christian is called to, to, to use our eyes and our minds and our hearts? Right? They're not to be wandering, but rather they are to be fixed on Christ. And when the heart and the mind and the eyes of the Christian are fixed on Christ, then that wandering to find something that fills up the soul ceases, doesn't it? Because Christ fills up everything that we need. Right? Christ makes the Christian whole. He makes us complete. He fills us up body and soul. He, he makes His people content. People are looking nowadays for all sorts of earthly riches. Uh, people hoard their money and their belongings. People work uh, for the, the purpose of, of accumulating things. But when you look out into the world, I mean, those people live with such anxiety, don't they? Right? Having to, to do all these things for themselves, thinking that, that all of this depends on them. But the one whose soul has been filled by Christ, uh, we don't focus upon the riches of this world, do we? Because we prefer, we prefer the treasures found in Christ. Uh, we don't hoard our money and our belongings, but we use them properly because we trust that God will always provide. Right? We don't uh, work for things, but rather we work to glorify God. And so there is no reason for us to be anxious, is there? Because we know that God is working out all things for our good, for the good of those who love Him. Uh, but see how the spiritual appetite of man has to first be fed by Christ in order for us to ever be content with our physical appetite or the physical things that God gives to us. Think about what Jesus says in, in uh, John chapter 6. If you'd like to, you can turn with me there. Otherwise, just listen. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So I want us to see with, with Christ's statement that Jesus is saying that He is the only entryway right, into all good things. Right? Because He alone makes the, the miserable man happy. Turn your attention to verses 10-12 to 12 with me then. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? 
which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, some people, as they read these verses, they read them in a negative sense, don't they? As if Solomon, at the end of all of this, kind of throws up his hands and goes, you know, who's going to know any of this? Who knows? You know, nobody knows. But I think that we ought to to read this in a positive way and see that he intends it in a positive way. Right? See that when he talks in verse 10 about no one being able to dispute with the one stronger than he, that there he's talking about God. Right? He's talking actually about the sovereignty of God. Um, I know you guys know this, but the, the sovereignty of God was not discovered by the Reformed faith in the you know, 16th century. Right? Calvin doesn't stumble upon the sovereignty of God. Right? It's everywhere in Scripture. And we see that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon believed in the sovereignty of God. Right? He believed that God ordained all things and that we cannot dispute with God about His plans and His purposes. Right? That's why he says, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Right? God is the potter, Paul says. Right? We are the the clay. We have creaturely limitations. God does not. Men, at the very, at the very best, at the very pinnacle of what man can be, are still just man. Right? We are still weak people. We are helpless. We are in need of others. We are sinners. And so Solomon teaches us that there is one mightier than you and I that, that we must go to who has eternally decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. He knows what is good. And He knows what is best for us. And no amount of complaining, no amount of words, no amount of talking to God will change His eternal purposes. Right? He knows what is and He knows what will be. Which means what? That we ought to look to God for our direction. And isn't Scripture replete with, with that same exhortation to us? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Solomon tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, we, we read how it is not in man to direct our own steps. Right? Here we read this, I know, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Psalm 40, verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. You see, without renewing grace, none of us will attain to anything that is truly good because by nature we are, we are all crooked individuals. Our feet are unstable, our minds unsure. But this is why it's so important to look to Christ who makes the, the blind man see. Right? Who sends His Holy Spirit who holds the hand of the Christian and guides our steps throughout the entirety of our life. Who enables us not to be tossed to and fro anymore, but to stand in the sure conviction of the Gospel and the promises. Brothers and sisters, you will never find anything truly good in this world apart from God. And to try to look for it without Him is utter vanity. But the fact that God has then has opened our eyes and, and enlightened us to this reality and, and 
enabled us to enjoy all the good things of this earth, shouldn't it cause us in response to offer thanksgiving to God? Right? Quickly and often? Offer thanksgiving to God that He sent His Son into the world to take upon Himself that miserable estate that we have been discussing throughout the book of Ecclesiastes for our sake? Thankfulness that we are able to discover so many of the truths this world wants to know but will never know? In that last line of verse 12, Solomon says, For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Doesn't everyone want to know what's going to happen to them when they die? Everyone wants to know the answer to that question. And yet, how many are willing to gamble their lives away through the pursuit of wealth and possessions and honor because they just say, oh, I don't know. I don't know. But they could know, couldn't they? Right? If they look to the, to the words of the God who, who spoke it to us, right? who, who tells us what will become of man when he dies. And yet, how many will still not listen? Because they say, I have to see it to believe it. But what does God say? Right? That His people walk by faith right, and not by sight. And so for those of you today who do, who walk by faith and not by sight, right, we know that a day is coming when our, our time under the sun will end. When we will perish. When we will die. And yet we know where we will go, which is why we look forward to that day when we will be brought into the presence of Christ, when all of the miseries of this world we will leave behind. And it is at that time, brothers and sisters, that it is we who will no longer walk by faith, but who will walk by sight. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, we confess, Lord, that oftentimes we, we can act like this miserable man of our text. And so, Lord, we ask for forgiveness for the times in which um, our desires are disordered. And we ask, Lord, that You would help us to desire right things, to desire You rightly, and to desire to use all that You give us rightly. Uh, we thank You, God, that You have redeemed us from the curse, that You have uh, altered our condition so that no longer are we uh, miserable, earthly-minded men and women, but rather You have made us happy and glad in the Lord. And so, Lord, I ask that You would continue to, to make us remember that and, and bring us to the, the foot of the cross each day in thanksgiving uh, for what You have done for us. And I ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.